0: You're listening to the Business Made Simple Podcast with Donald Miller and Dr. J.J. Peterson. Today's guest is my friend, Bill Haslam. Bill was the governor of Tennessee for eight years. We just had the governor of Tennessee on the show, Bill Lee. Bill Haslam is a different governor of Tennessee. He was the governor of Tennessee before Billy. Governor Haslam has a book out called Faithful Presence, which I have actually read twice. I really, really like the book. Today, we're going to talk about faith and leadership and business and how they interplay and, and all the gray area in between, and what's gonna be great is it's not preaching. We're not asking you to go to church. This is just a practical guy talking about how his faith influences his leadership in a practical, common sense way. Because really the tension is you're a Christian leader who leads a lot of people who do not identify with that religion, and what in the world do you do? That's a I mean, that's a tough conversation. That's a tough thing to navigate. a tough thing to do. And I thought Governor Haslam did it extremely well as a leader, and I'm so thankful he talked about how he did it and why he did it the way he did it in his book, Faithful Presence. So here's my conversation with Governor Bill Haslam. Governor, it's great to have you back.
1: It is so fun to be back on your show. What do you and be call? With you. What do you
0: call a governor? Who you, you, I, you, we call you, Governor Forever, right? I mean,
1: you, uh, yeah. Your well, term it depends? Expired. You know, uh, the Australians say rooster today, feather duster tomorrow, so you <laughs> could say feather duster. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, it's good to have you back. And
0: since you've left office, we should just catch people up. Since you've left office, what have you been doing?
1: Several things, you know. Obviously, wrote this book. I've been uh, kind of reengaging in light. You know, you kind of set a lot of things aside when you're in office from uh your own personal interests to some boards you used to be on to and don't hadn't seen kids and grandkids as much as we wanted to. So yeah. we're we're catching up on a lot of things yeah. in life that got put on hold. Well, that's gotta feel good. It's really good.
0: You you wrote a book, Faithful Presence again is the name of the book. And it's really about it's an interesting book because I remember you us talking before you ever started the book. Do you
1: remember that? I do. And I I mean I'm Full disclosure, you are one of my main encouragements for writing it in terms of here's why this could matter. So I do remember the conversation. And I remember
0: wondering, and I'm just going to put it out there. I remember wondering, of course, a book is a great idea. A book about leadership is a great idea. And I remember wondering, man, you know, if this guy ever runs for president or something, how, how much of his faith should he talk about? Right, because I didn't know you super well. I was like, "Does he handle right. snakes?" And <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> only on Wednesdays. <laughs> but yeah. uh, you know, I was wondering, and and when I read the book, I just thought, "Gosh, this is such a beautiful book about common sense faith, common sense leadership, and a refreshing amount of ambiguity of hey, you know." I'm not sure where the line between justice and mercy is, and right. I had to go to my faith, and my faith was really right. not super helpful in me figuring that stuff out. Why go the faith route instead of the leadership route?
1: I really am trying to address this problem that all of us feel, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum of you know the country is feels like almost hopelessly divided, and mm-hmm. we're mad at each other, and it feels like to me, it just felt like to me, and feel like even more now that. People of faith could be part of the answer to it, and right now we're just, like everybody else, we're frustrated, and quite frankly, we're acting like everybody else. We're just as likely to be mean on the internet. We're just (laughs) as likely to say things that we would never say in person, Uh, and we're just as uh, likely to not think the other side has valid points. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, I've had a unique opportunity to be a mayor and a governor. Maybe I can use that experience to say, here's what it might look like if— believers and people of faith really acted differently in the public square. You
0: know, sometimes I feel like the country is a giant homeowners association. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, I, it is.
0: That's actually right. Yeah. And, and and I lived in one homeowners association, and it liked to drive me nuts. Right. I mean, it really did. Really, what it is, I've noticed this about ministry, because I have a lot of friends in ministry, pastors, Christian pastors is what we're talking about, uh, and in in the public square, elected officials. There's something about people who go to church who feel like, you know, I tithed once seven years ago, so yeah. this church belongs to me, right? and I should say what the pastor does. And then the same thing happens in, in public leadership with elected officials. The government belongs to me, so you should do what I, I say. I've noticed that as I stopped writing Christian memoirs and started writing business, all that went away. Nobody tried to control me. And yeah. nobody, you know, they, if they didn't like it, they just
1: well, bought somebody else's book. If you, if if you book. think about what you're saying, and you're right, government really is one big homeowner's association. <laughs> Politics is how we decide how we're going to govern ourselves. Right. You know, it's how we come together to say, you know, here's how we're going to cross streets, and here's how we're going to dispense, you know, tax dollars for medical care and everything else. Too many of us feel like, I, I this is mine. Right. I have the answer. And by the way, all my friends think just like I do. So most people... Do and it, I mean to go to a very raw subject. Think about what happened January sixth in the Capitol. Mm, mm-hmm. There were some people who said this election didn't turn out the way that I thought it should, and I think something happened that shouldn't have happened. Therefore, five hundred of us are going to go storm the Capitol to overturn an election process. Yeah, that that's the ultimate way that right. feeling plays out.
0: Well, and they're 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 saying the people who who disagree with me and vote differently. Those aren't actually Americans, right? There was a joke sitcom once where uh, uh, one of the characters started a, a political action committee called "Americans for a More American America." Yeah. <laughs> I just thought yeah. That was a sort of funny <laughs> yeah. way to say it. Yeah, yeah, you know. So this is, you know, America is
1: this, and right. nobody else should really have a say. So, so you're putting your finger on really what's at the heart of this, and it's why, again, coming back to, you know, why. I wrote this book, but for for this reason, we all tend to think that way, right? We all tend to think like, well, everybody wants me to play my music loud. Right. Uh, But but that's not (laughs) how it works. Who doesn't like Def Leppard? The the, the truth is the, the, the country's evenly divided, now, we don't feel that way because we tend to, li- to live in pockets of people that think like we do. Here, here's an interesting statistic to tell you about that. There's something called the Cracker Barrel versus Whole Foods gap, which <laughs> okay. is just what you think it is. It's, yeah. it's counties that have a Whole Food tend to be more liberal progressive versus counties that have a Cracker Barrel. Some have both, but they, they survey. Yeah, but they're largely separated. If they you had really one are. or the other. And the gap between those counties – and how they voted in the first uh, Clinton-Bush election was like 10 points, okay? And then basically it's gone up and up. up. The last election between uh, Trump and Biden, the gap was 60 points. Mm. So all that says is we're starting to live around and work with and worship with people who think just like we do, okay? So we think everybody does. The truth is the country's divided. The last nine presidential elections have been single digits. So all of us have to start with this realization that everybody doesn't think like I do. That doesn't mean we're compromising what we believe, mm-hmm. but it's uh, as a friend, uh, um, I stole the term from him. He said we should be firm on the inside but soft on the outside hmm. because we realize that people aren't like us. Now there's certain things that I'm, I'm scripture is really clear about, but there's a lot that that. It's not. Yeah. And so I need to enter the public square with this realization. I could be wrong and thus have a spirit of humility. We, we haven't done that. And it's not very winsome.
0: And really the thing that I, I always wonder when somebody say, is really mad at the other side, the question that I have, and I've just never asked it, but the question that I have for them is, what do you want to do with those people? Right. Where do you want them right. to go? Right. Right. Explain to me what you want to do. With the people who also pay taxes and disagree. And and then
1: the other question would be: for the would be, okay, when you have that really clever put down on Twitter or that great retort to the argument, and you're like, yeah, I won, do they change their mind? (laughs) I mean, is that how you change your mind? No. (laughs) The next time you want to send an email so that you can own the other side, think, am I being pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, impartial, sincere? (laughs) No, probably (laughs) not. But but I guess that's the other thing I'd say is somehow we give ourselves a waiver on issues in the public square that we don't in other ways. In other words, in business, you don't say, you need to run your business by these ethical principles unless you're getting ready to go bankrupt, and then you should right, pay by whatever right. rules. Yeah. Or you should be faithful to your spouse unless the person in the next cubicle is really hot. Mm-hmm. You know, We, we don't yeah. say that, but here we're saying the stakes are so high here. That We We can lie a little to support the truth. I've had people say, Bill, you're asking people to bring a pillow to a knife fight, and it's just not going to work. But I'd say, wait, wait, are you going to suspend the rules in other parts of your life? And
0: What you're really saying is sometimes, correct me if I'm wrong, sometimes doing the right thing is going to lead to a loss in a worldly power
1: structure. If you go back around to, you know, okay, well, the question is, well, does meekness work? You know, can humility work in today's... Political world. And I'd say, arguably, the very best president of all time, Abraham Lincoln, you could describe as meek. This is a guy who was able to take the loss of 600,000 citizens, you know, to preserve the Union and to end slavery. So, meek doesn't mean weak, but it does mean not having the humility to enter the public square with a willingness to, how do I get to the right answer instead of just my answer? Yeah. There's
0: another. Passage in the book of James that talks about you know when you pray go into your inner closet and pray right. in secret and and really this was a one of the most impactful passages to me maybe fifteen years ago but for those who don't for those who 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 are loud about it you get your reward in full it doesn't say what that reward is right but I always thought well it gets the religious people to like you but God isn't going to answer that prayer <laughs>
1: right 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 yeah yeah yeah
0: and and yet. As a man of faith, somebody who wanted to go, you know, thought about becoming a pastor Mm -hmm. and ended up uh, being mayor of Knoxville and then governor of Tennessee. You are public about your faith, and yet Mm -hmm. you walked a very interesting line. When you were governor, I remember the legislature wanted you to make the Bible the state book of Tennessee and passed that, and you vetoed it. What is the what is the public? Here's the real question: What's the public responsibility of a Christian governor when he knows he's got Muslims? A lot, big Kurdish population here in, in Nashville, atheists, people who uh, are agnostic. You, you've you got a responsibility to all of them, too. How did you walk that line? Yeah,
1: so uh, first of all, uh, to to say this, those folks that want the state to be the church uh, are, I think, um, going down a bad path. You look at wherever the the government has been entwined with the church, it hasn't ended well with the church. Think about Europe today where there was official government-sponsored yeah, church, yeah, and the church, the church is fairly dead in most parts of Europe, okay? we well, look at where the church is growing. You have this, this openness, and I think our founders were brilliant uh, in the framers of the Constitution in that what they said is, religion is so important, we're not going to uh, let the government play at all. We're not going to let the government establish a religion, Okay but we're also not going to prohibit the free exercise thereof. And so those are the two great truths that we live with. Governments can't make any religion the official religion, and I'd argue we don't want them to. And then number 2, nor can they stop you from the free exercise of your faith. And Supreme Court's, you know, ruled on several cases that speak to that recently and I kind of think they've gotten it right in, in, in keeping both of those principles true.
0: You've been a leader for a long time. You ran a company. You were mayor of the city of Knoxville, governor. That's probably leadership at, at about the highest level. What, 30,000 employees, uh, employees? Almost
1: 40,000 employees. Almost
0: 40,000 employees.
1: Yeah. You might have had
0: more than that at pilot. I don't, I don't yeah, know. No. Yeah, I'm <laughs> not sure. But uh, what's something that you wished you knew about leadership on day one, being governor, that you knew on the, after eight years?
1: Can, can I give you three quick things? Yes, please. Number one, um, this is harder than it looks. While well, even if you're a leader, there's somebody that that's your leader. Yeah, uh, you should give that person grace. I, I just learned by the time decisions got to the governor, if they got to me, there were it wasn't there wasn't an easy answer. And as a friend of mine says, even a pancake has two sides. You know, and yeah. there, there there usually is a good argument for the other side. So that'd be the first thing: is harder than it looks. Give other people who are leaders some grace. Number two, never hire somebody who has a big ego. It's just not worth it. It never ends well. Wow. I mean, that's, that's a really specific. Yeah. What's his name? No. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's actually, it's so specific, but it actually is. That's, that's almost like saying
1: never throw a wrench into the engine. It, it's just never worth it. And there's a lot of people who think this guy he, or woman that's so talented. They're so great. And I know they're hard to work with, but it'll be worth it. Trust me, it is never worth it. It never ends well. I don't care how talented they are. If they're that person that you don't want to work with, don't hire them for somebody else to work with. And then the third thing I'd say is this remember the people working for you have full lives and you only see a sliver of that. I I went to a funeral yesterday of somebody who had worked at the state um, that worked in our budget office. And so I worked, you know, I was always real involved in the budget for, you know, for a two month period. I saw him three or four times a week and we were working through hard stuff, and then I went to the funeral. I heard his kids talk about him and his wife talk wow. about him. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing this slice of the pie. And I, I knew that in my head, you know, that obviously everybody has full lives outside it, but I thought, I wish I would have heard his kids talk about him before I worked for, with him. Hmm. I would have had a whole different approach. And if that's true for him, we know it's true for all of us.
0: Yeah. To some degree, you've got the heart of a pastor. How did that— work to your advantage, I guess, as a governor. I mean, how much of it is pastoring and how much of it is decision making and how much of it is politics? You know, and-
1: it's interesting. I have put in the book that when I ran for mayor of Knox, I thought I'm gonna be the CEO of the city, but I quickly found out I was much more the senior pastor. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that I wasn't giving yeah, you still I wasn't giving, decisions, I wasn't right? giving sermons out at uh, out on Market Square. Uh, but it was all about the relationships. And in those relationships where people like you and me who have some good things happening at home and some bad things and have some dreams that are coming true and some dreams that are getting busted. And, you know, we're trying to work out problems with people that have their passions about what they really care about. And we're trying to work with those and still get to something that works for the bigger group. You see what I'm saying? It's yeah. a, It was way more about the relationships than about the political philosophies in the end. Hmm. and. I'm I'm just one of those that I I think you'd say the same thing. If you get the relationships right, other things tend to work out.
0: Yeah, they do. Speaking of relationships, uh, you developed a relationship with a young woman named Santoya Brown. Mm-hmm. You tell the story in the book. Yeah. It's a beautiful story, and I think every there's not a single person I've ever encountered who wouldn't applaud that. Yeah. And yet, as governor, you could have you could have commuted a lot of sentences. I just visited yeah. a gentleman on death row the other day, who uh, has become a believer. He's been there for twenty years and. You know, I'm walking away going, man, if I was governor, what would I do about yeah. this? This is really, really tough. You had to actually face those. I want to know why, what was the difference with with Centoia? And I know you tell the story. It's a beautiful story, the way you tell it in the book. Uh, and how did you walk that line between how to communicate yeah. and how to not? That just seems nearly impossible.
1: Yeah. Um, C- Centoia actually was not on death row. She actually had a life sentence. She was sentenced as a juvenile oh, to, yeah. to life. Yeah. Uh, so, so some distinction there. But then we did deal with capital punishment cases. And- you know in Centoya's case, um, what we looked at is she ended up on the streets working as a prostitute as a 16 year old no 16 year old girl chooses to do that. She did something in her in, in her own words, it was horrific. but she was sentenced to life today. She would be probably sentenced to a is as a 16 year old. she'd probably have a 15 year sentence. But she also became a picture of what we hope happens in the correction system of a rehabilitated life that showed repentance. And I became convinced she would be better for society outside than inside. She, while she was there, she got her, her undergraduate degree from Lipscomb, made a four O. I haven't checked your or my transcript, but I'm pretty it's sure neither oh. of them starts with a four, and we're not even sure four about on the three. on a scale three. of one to ten. Yeah, I we're not it. even sure about the three part. <laughs> yeah. um, so I just, I, I thought this was a beautiful picture of redemption. We basically commuted her sentence to where she had six months more to serve. So there was a time when we were out of office, and she was still in uh, prison, and Chrissy and I went to see her. And it was like meeting somebody in your family that you knew all about, but had never met. A lot of times your life intertwines with somebody else, but you never see their side of it. You know, you make a decision to do something and it impacts somebody in in some big way, but you never see it from their side. But we kind of got the chance to both of us to live out this part of a story separate that affected each other and then to see the other side. And, and it just it really was a beautiful moment. Chrissy and I both got back in the car at the uh, leaving the prison and thought we're just really, really glad that we know her. Yeah. And just a beautiful story of redemption. How did you figure out or
0: how did you walk the line between justice and mercy? You talk about it in the book. Yeah. But that to me would be one of the hardest things to try to figure out. It is it, some sort of framework for. I,
1: I thought I would be able to do it really easily and I couldn't. Um because even in in Centoya's case, you know, we found out that there's like eighty or ninety people like her who are juveniles who had gotten life sentences. Hers had gotten all this attention. Because Snoop Dogg and Kim Kardashian Mm -hmm. and LeBron and people had tweeted about it. I thought, is it fair to single her out because she got this attention over these other 80? But by the time I'd gotten to this, I had like three months left in office. There was no way to go back fairly through every case. Those decisions were hard. We looked at a whole lot of cases. And some folks, we commuted their sentence. And some folks, we didn't. Um, But we tried our best to look at it with mercy, but also with justice, a sense of their there is a crime that was committed. There's a system set up. There was a jury that met and said, here's what should happen. And I didn't feel like in a lot of those cases I should go back and be the 13th juror 20 years later and say, I think they got it wrong. Yeah. But it was hard. I mean, the, the point of, of that is, to me, it was part of the beauty of the gospel. This whole picture of getting justice and what Jesus did was get justice and mercy at the same time. And I thought I could do it, and I couldn't.
0: That's beautiful humility and authenticity. When you talk about the beauty of the gospel, you know, you brought up January 6th. You've got the Christian flag right next to right. The, the rebel flag. Right. What is the relationship that evangelicals should have, in your view, to the government?
1: Yeah. So I add to say that there's a, there's a great passage in Jeremiah where um, the Israelites are being held captive in Babylon. And Babylon, think of, you know, today's Iraq, basically only worse and um, they're a horrible leader. They're enslaved, and uh, Jeremiah writes to them with, it. Adv- with here's what you should do. It, if I'm ever held captive and you write to me, I want it to be, Bill, we're coming to get you, okay? Uh, I've got a plan. We're coming to get you. Right. But Jeremiah writes and says, listen, you're going to be there a while. And so he tells them to plant gardens, build houses, marry their children, have their children have children, and then he says seek the peace of the place where I have called you, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I think that's that's the message for us. What should we do in terms of, we should seek the peace of the place where we're called us in whatever role that we're called to be faithfully present in. For some of us, that means running for office. For others, it means helping people, good people we know run for office. And for others, it might just mean voting. But also in there is this reality that Government provides needs and can do things that we can't do ourselves. Bill Gates cannot build his own interstate system, okay Warren Buffett cannot have his own army. I mean, you see where I'm going with it with yeah. that and so what's this all this really matters, and so what should in seeking the peace of the places where we're called? I think that includes we elect people who really care about making a difference uh because now we're it's a lot more likely that the people running just want to make a point.
0: That's a great way to say it. Bill Haslam, thanks for being with us today. The book is called Faithful Presence. It's out now on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Will you come back when you write another?
1: Uh, I will, but don't. Hold, I hope you have so, <laughs> a, whole, a lot of other guests lined up. I have a new respect for real authors like you. I, I said this in the book. It's uh, people who really write. Uh, this is. I'm telling you at home, this is not as easy as it looks. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, you did a great job. I, I, I told you once, it's hard to write a book. It's even harder to write a good book, and you did both.
1: Thanks for your help.
0: Governor Haslam has so much insight in what it takes to be a great leader. He spoke about how much compromise and empathy is actually needed and how far compromise and empathy actually get you in terms of respect. Well, at the end of these podcast interviews, I want to leave you with a plan of action. That is something you can do immediately. You can implement to strengthen and grow your business. After this incredible conversation with Bill Haslam, the plan of action I think is just spoken by Governor Haslam himself being a governor or a leader is harder than it looks. So we should give the ones that we see on top a little bit of grace. And as a leader, many of you know that, right? People aren't giving you grace and you need it. So we should give some of our leaders some grace as well. Two, never hire someone with a big ego. I mean, talk about just pragmatic, practical advice. It never works out no matter how great they seem to be. You're just going to have to deal with drama. Three, remember the people who work for you have Full lives outside of your business. You know that became really obvious to me after Betsy and I had a baby. We we have a really great maternity leave program, three months. We have great uh, paternity leave for three weeks. And I just thought, gosh, you know, we're so generous. And then uh, we had a baby, and I realized this is not generosity. This is just this is a small token that you can keep your sanity (laughs) while you're bringing a human being into the world. So um, uh, you know, I I mean, I I understand if your profit margin is really small, it's hard to offer that kind of stuff, but You know, it just it made me aware. Like we we did a big dinner with our leaders. You know, we sent a hundred dollar Uber Eats gift certificate to uh, the spouses because I realized for the first time, like an idiot, uh, when you have a dinner, half the help leaves, (laughs) and uh, you know to realize that. these are human beings, and they have a life outside your business. I think will make them really, really uh, be a little more loyal to you and stick around a little more because they know that you understand things that uh, other bosses may not understand. Uh, you only see a sliver of what's going on outside the workplace. Bill talked about someone on his staff who passed away, and, and uh, at the funeral, his children and family spoke so highly of him. You know, those are kind of sobering moments when you realize that. Uh, as ambitious as we are and as much as we're trying to get goals done, they are, these are human beings. Uh, they are loved and admired. You know, There seems to be a general theme talking to Governor Haslam. There always has been since the very first conversation I've had with him, and that is um, he's a guide. I mean, if you're familiar with the story brand framework, you know that as a brand, you play the guide and not the hero. And as a leader, we play the guide as well. There are two other characters I don't talk about. I talk about heroes and guides. I, I talk about them in my new book coming out in January, uh, Hero on a Mission. But there's also the victim and the villain. And the primary characteristic of a villain in any story is the villain makes people small. And the guide makes people big, specifically the hero. They help the hero win. They help the hero transform into a bigger, better version of themselves. Villains squash out people. And what I hear Governor Haslam saying is, be the guide. Don't be the villain. Don't make people small. Thank you to Bill Haslam. His book, again, is called Faithful Presence. I've read it twice It's available on Amazon. You should go get it. Listen, if you need help assessing what's wrong with your business or your leadership or whatever you're trying to build, you can actually hire a business made simple certified coach. Just go to hireacoach.com. We actually certify the best business coaches in the world, and they can each help you figure out exactly what's wrong, what's going wrong with your business, and then they can give you the tools that you need to fix it. Just go to hireacoach.com today. Listen, that's all for this episode. Thanks as always for listening to the Business Made Simple podcast, where every week we help you discover what's wrong with your business, and then we show you how to fix it. I'll see you again next week.